0: This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian podcast. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the brilliant Will Durst, a comedian with many, many years of experience under his belt. Uh, You are going to find out just what he's up to at the moment, what he's been up to over the last uh, 30 plus years, I think. Uh, And this is an episode recorded at the uh, Edinburgh Festival earlier this year. And this was one recorded at the fabulous Black Medicine Coffee Shop under the auspices, whatever that means, of the PBH Free Fringe. This is Will Durst. (laughs) Thanks so much is good. Have a seat So That was a good that's, that's a very good introduction, well done Lovely Hi Hello is, not, I know it's late Yeah, it is late, it is late Sorry about that everyone, but we're trying to build this as the The, the thinking person's late night alternative Because most shows on around now Are about people getting hammered and screaming shit at comedians. And someone in the audience nodding as they to go, yeah, I was planning to go to one of them. That's <laughs> it. Um, so, Will, tell us, uh, for those of us who don't know you, people will be listening to this all over the place, but um, uh, for those of us not familiar with your work, could you just briefly describe who you are and where you come from? Oh, jeez, I have no
2: idea. Um, I'm a stand-up, always wanted to be a stand-up. My ma says, when I was six years old, I asked her where I could go to school to become a stand-up comedian. And I went to the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Wanted to. I, I studied journalism and theater and film and broadcasting. I kind of approached it from all four different angles. So when I finally uh, did stand up, it wasn't a huge leap. You know, it was a tiny little step because I had I had written my own material and I had been on stage doing plays and stuff. So I just started doing political stuff because when i started in 1974 before many of you were even glints uh i everything in america was political for about 8 years because of vietnam so uh 74 was the end of vietnam it was watergate had had just happened and uh, so everything that we We had been kind of forged in a crucible, so I was political. It wasn't all political. A lot of it was uh, about the town that I was in, Milwaukee. And then I had to leave. So at the time, there were three cities where you could make money doing stand-up comedy. And there were Chicago, Boston, and San Francisco. Not New York and L.A. because everybody's willing to do it for free for exposure. Even then? Oh, yeah.
0: In 1974? Yeah, yeah. What was the comedy landscape like in, in 1974? Who were the Who were the heroes? Who were the Louis C.K.'s and the Chris Rocks in, in 74? Well, comedy kind of
2: died when Kennedy was killed. And, yeah, there was no humor. Everybody was depressed. And then um, Steve Martin made Goofy funny again. So did Robin Williams. And <clears throat> Cheech and Chong and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and all those guys... Uh, But they were all political and and, and then Steve Martin came along with the arrow through his head and he kind of brought people back and then Saturday Night Live. So that that was the landscape. There were clubs in New York and L.A. There were the improv clubs and the comedy store in L.A. And there were a couple of headliner clubs around but not that many. And who was starting out at the same time as you? Everybody everybody it was it was outcasts and misfits and and square pegs that didn't fit into round holes and and uh not just square play uh, pegs uh hexagonal pegs i mean just odd looking pegs because <laughs> there was there was no money in it there was there was no money in it and and then about 10 years later in 84 cable discovered stand-up comedy because it was so cheap to produce. You didn't have to hire writers because comics were self-contained and uh, you didn't have to pay music fees. So Cable kind of created the comedy circuit
0: in, in America. So when you... St- it's, it's fascinating hear you say that because something that... I, I wonder if it's perpetuated... I wonder if it's perpetually a, a cliché amongst stand-up comedians. The idea that... Like, wow, well, 10 years ago, people did it for the, for the art. And now, of course, everyone, everyone's in it for a career. Because that's something we say now about contemporary comedy. People go, oh, you know, the, the guys that started but maybe 20 years ago, there was no career plan. Certainly in the UK, there was no, you know, it, it, was, it was like the, the birth of alternative comedy, twenty maybe, maybe well, right. even 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And nowadays, people are kind of grumbling, and older British comics are going, oh, it's unbelievable. Everyone's in it with a game plan now, the T-shirt comedians, the teeth comedians. You know, they just they're they're just in it to try and get famous. Well, did you have a, an explosion of television featuring stand up comedy? That has, I mean, a, the most recent explosion probably started what seven years ago. When did when did Live at the Apollo start? Maybe within the la, within the last ten years, certainly. Yeah, so, so maybe that's they're been right. The most recent one. Maybe they're right. Yeah, yeah. So that was so even when you started in seventy four there was already, were there kind of lines drawn as to these are the people who are being artistic and alternative?
2: No, everybody was. Because uh, cable didn't happen until, I mean, cable, HBO started doing on-location things with, but there was just Robert Klein and, and Carlin and people who were already famous in touring. You know, it wasn't until Evening at the Improv discovered uh, they they went on a cable channel and it proliferated and, and at one time they were running three times a day, an hour. And A and E, this uh, arts and entertainment network in America, they were known as the Comedy and Nazi Channel because
0: <laughs> they had. We totally hi- still have that.
2: Yeah, they had history. Uh, so they were always doing, you know, features on Hitler, and then they would have a stand-up
0: comedy show. <laughs> so it was very eclectic. And and how did you bring yourself to it? You say you were doing lots of other jobs. How old were you when you actually did your first open mic? I had tried doing stand-up comedy, but I didn't know what I was really
2: doing. Uh, but I, I put together an act, because I was writing uh, 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 for a local underground newspaper. So I And it was a humor column, so I took all the funny parts and... I put them together into a stand-up comedy set, and the first time I died—a horrible death, horrible. But I had seven minutes; I had memorized my routine, and you That's know, very unusual the, for the,
0: someone's very first. The, gig. the first
2: seven minutes is the toughest, yeah, you know. And the second time you do a gig is the toughest because the first time usually you do well because you have all this nervous energy and you've been focusing on it for so long and you memorized it and 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 then sometimes you invite your mates down to watch you and support you. And, and so you do halfway decent because you got all that adrenaline. Sh- and then the second time you go up and you die. And when you die, everything is highlighted. When, when you die on stage, when you do well, it's a blur. It's, it's the way you always heard it should be. You're, you're floating on a rainbow and, and carried by clouds and, and the wings of angels are carrying you into the sun. But when you die, time slows down and every syllable is, it's highlighted in 24 point font and, and in that bright yellow and every, you remember every little thing. So, yeah, I know three guys who did stand-up comedy twice the first time they killed and the second time they went on stage and they died and they never did it again because it didn't make any sense you know it's like when you feed information into a computer twice you get the same result well an audience (laughs) is not like that
0: so what was it about you that kept you going past that first death
2: oh i'm really stupid yeah, I mean, come on, say I, no, no. I have, uh, you know, I just uh, wanted to do it, and because
0: uh, when, you when work? it
2: works, it's so good. When it works, it's better than sex and drugs and rock and roll and chocolate, and it's better than it's better than anything. When it works, when you, when you're on that, and every syllable and every gesture, and the audience kind of bonds with you, and and then you come off stage, and the next voice he hears from a waitress behind you, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and boom, you're mortal again.
0: So when you were, I I just want to stay with the idea of what, like you know that now, you know, that's what you got from it now, but you aged however old you were in 74. I was 22. 22 years old. You didn't know at that point that it was going to, that it was going to be like that. So when you did that first gig and you bombed and you died, like what? What separated you from those three friends of yours who tried it once, did well, tried it once, bombed, and then gave up? What was it you were hungry for? Was it the attention? Was it the? Was it artistic expression? What was your prime drive? I just had always
2: enjoyed stand-up comedy, and I uh, remember we had Johnny Carson, and Johnny Carson uh, in the Midwest was on at like ten thirty at night, and so I could convince my parents to let me stay up and watch the comic. On Carson, and he would have a comic on maybe three times a week. He was very generous, and uh, they were all different, and I just thought it was so you know a man and a microphone and i And I tried theater and i couldn 't get any parts because I got a face like an overbaked potato, so uh, there weren't <laughs> weren't a real lot of, and, and when you're, when you're on stage, it's just you. And, and I tried, uh, sketch groups and comedy groups and, and that's, uh, it's like being in a band. I don't know if you've ever been in a band, but when you try to get four egos together, show business egos, there's always some clash and one guy, uh, you know, he, all he wants to do is rehearse. He just wants to rehearse and, and he does, he's not worried about actually doing the gig on stage. And, and then there's the other asshole who just does, wants to get on stage. And that was me and, uh, didn't want to rehearse. And then, uh, there's, the lovers quarrel, and you know the drummer who's always homeless. Well, the, every every group has a every comedy group has a drummer in it. Uh, so so, but stand up comedy. And my wife is an improviser, and my okay. wife is much funnier than I am. But uh, she she does voices. She was in a movie called Nightmare Before Christmas. She did three voices in that.
0: Which I've got to ask you, which voices she did? I know that she movie. did the
2: little witch and uh, the corpse child and the corpse mom. She's I'm the waiting. one. She's the one who goes.
0: There goes Christmas.
2: Which, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but she, she worked with Robin Williams in San Francisco before he got Happy Days. You know, which led to Mark and Mindy. Okay. But he was a star in San Francisco. But she knew him when he was the funniest guy in the room, not the funniest guy on the planet. So my wife is much fun. But she can't. She's done it a couple of times where she emceeds something. But uh, she works off of other people. You know, she when when you have that Im- improv thing and it's just boom, 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 and nobody's thinking. I I work from a script. Okay. I work from script.
0: I've always been, I, I don't know if you share this at all, but I've always been really jealous of improv guys uh, yeah. because they Me seem too. so happy. They're in a group. They don't feel all lonely and isolated because they travel together, they work together, and they don't have to spend any time writing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> or memorizing lines. Or
0: memorizing yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah. So, what, but that's interesting. The, the, the difference that you hit upon there was that you are scripted. And so there's the, the question of ego and the fact of you wanting the limelight for yourself. And also that you're scripted. So the stuff that you were scripting, was that driven by – I mean, were you doing political satire at that time? Were you angry at the government and that's why you were writing?
2: I was so angry. I look at tapes from me, you know, from 79 and 80 when I just started out and I'm wondering, why the hell is he so angry, you know? (laughs) Dude, settle. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, and and – it was a time of revolution, and comedy was the new rock and roll in the eighties because it was that same group of activists that thought they stopped the war when it would just you know the the corporations just gave up it wasn't you know it had to, little to do with the activists you know stopping and and the revolutionary spirit but um, so the 80s that same group was going out but they were going to comedy clubs cuz they were they were too old to stand up for a concert and they wanted to sit down <laughs> and uh, they wanted to hear the lyrics uh because Uh, That was a a lot to do with who was coming to a comedy club, And also you could take, you you know, every generation says, oh, we had artists, you know. Uh, But it was like verbal jazz. I mean, that's why people came. And and there were were guys who were incredibly funny who never made it, uh, who you don't know of. um, But there were also guys, you know, at the time in San Francisco, Dana Carvey and Robin Williams and – and uh, uh, a bunch of guys uh, who Rob Schneider, um, guys who you know went on to Saturday Night Live, and it was uh, just a, it was, it was like the left bank, you know. I mean, San Francisco, because we had more opportunity, and the audiences thought they were smarter. They weren't necessarily smarter, but <laughs> they thought they were smarter because they lived in San Francisco, and San Francisco
0: has this attitude right about itself. So. It was uh, it was a time. And what was what was your relationship to the comedy community at the time? Were you someone who was like what were you known for? If someone said like you like you described the members of the band, you know, if in the members of the you know the green room of a comedy club, what were you known for? Uh,
2: I don't know the professor, I guess. I Why really, do you say that? I was because uh, I use big words. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And is that because you were clever or because you were San Francisco no, as well yeah, and you thought you were yeah, okay. yeah,
2: just try to be clever. Try too hard sometimes.
0: And what, how were you writing? What did, you, what did a week look for you? Were you? Would you sit down and actually write out stuff longhand or would you take ideas on stage? When you said you were scripting, how would you approach the process of turning an idea into a workable piece of material? Well, I write a
2: column right now. And it's a political humor column that gets syndicated in the U.S. And I find that I can take a line from the 550 words that I'm writing. And it might be one line that is stage worthy because it's two totally different voices. And so learning that and learning how to transfer it to uh, the stage took forever. But also, I, I love that deadline. I love having... To come up, like I, after this, I have to go home and write because I have a deadline tomorrow noon. This time I have to hand in something. Uh, so I love that deadline because, it, you know, it, it, somebody else is counting on me. If it's just me, you know, I could put it off and I'll get to it later, you know, but somebody else is. So I always seek out those situations where I have an enforced deadline by somebody else.
0: Okay. And so you've got the – so put us in the shoes. I mean would would you would you have had deadlines when you were in your 20s or would you like kind of – the sort of deadlines I imagine are kind of like you book yourself in for a gig and then you've got to come up with material for that new show.
2: Yeah, we didn't have new shows. We, <laughs> we just did the same material. But because I was doing political stuff, everything has – uh, a sell-by date. Everything yeah. has a, a shelf life, and and some of them are a couple of weeks, and some of them are six months, and some of them I'm still doing a Reagan joke. Remember when, remember when Reagan was shot, and he didn't know he was shot? I don't know about you, I'd like a president with a central nervous system. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, some stuff, you can just carry it on or bring it back, but some stuff is very internal, you know, like, uh, or, or very fragile, so... Uh, I was always writing. I was always writing.
0: And I want to. I just want to zero in on that that process of writing. Are you kind of reading stuff in the newspaper, getting angry about it, and then trying to unpack it, trying to pull it apart? What did you? What kind of principles did you write to?
2: I I learned through osmosis, so I don't listen to music. I had to give that up because it was so complicated. It was like a life's work listening to music, you know. I mean, learning about it and so, so I listen to news talk radio. Okay. I don't read novels anymore. I just read magazines and periodicals and and websites. So I but I learn through us just by reading all that stuff. I learn who the characters are and I also learn the buzzwords and the phrases cuz comedy is so idiosyncratic it's so it's so full of idiom you know that's why a lot of u um, k comics come to the states, and it doesn 't float and, and the reverse happens true because you know you guys know all your commercials from your youth, and a comic can go on stage and just mention like one little prepositional phrase, and you know what he 's talking about it, and we do the same thing with with our you know cultural references which don 't always translate so uh, i I try to I, I still see it as verbal jazz. I still try to distill as much into, you know, as little words as possible.
0: I don't, I know almost nothing about jazz and it, like actual <laughs> musical jazz, but I'm just just to kind of get my head around the analogy. I, I, I don't know, but I think I've got this kind of uh, uh, preconception that jazz guys are try, always trying to make something new, always trying to not play the same note twice, not, not play the same melody twice. <laughs> they would have to play the same note. Um, but... Did you find, do you find as a, as a writer regarding your comedy as verbal jazz, do you find that there are certain, uh, habits or tropes of writing that you've, that you catch yourself doing and have to try and steer, steer clear from like, do you ever, do you ever spot a thing and go, "I've, I've sort of done that shape of a joke before? Uh no I uh, you can use that sometimes
2: as you know as a, a backbeat as a, a rhythm you can use that you have to know when to get off of it I find that sometimes I'm a little too clever by half you know okay. I have I have a joke. That I do my little act, and I'm doing a show not about politics. I'm doing a show about being a baby boomer, because it's cheating. I'm hoping that you know I could do the same show in front of the same group of baby boomers, and it'll always seem fresh to them. So, uh, the idea is to have something that's evergreen, topical,
0: uh, and yet timeless. Yes, yeah, nice. <laughs> and
2: and what I do is uh, I do a joke about uh, it's too many words. It's about piercings. It's about you know, uh, piercings of food servers. Shouldn't there be a limit on the number of piercings allowed on food servers? Just seems like a lot of extra crevices for the breakfast to lodge and crust over. Right. <laughs> and I found that crevices is a wrong word. Crevices doesn't work. All I have to do is use holes. It just seems like a lot of extra holes. And, but I love crevices. <laughs> <laughs> So I keep trying to sell it, even though I know holes gets a better laugh, you know, yes. and I keep trying to sell crevices. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I actually, one of the, my favorite lines from your show, and I, I'll murder it if I try and say it myself, but there is a line in which you use, you describe, um, it's the Balinese hexagram or a pentagram. What's that line? Do you yeah, remember? I have it's like no pe- idea. Polynesian hexagram. This oh, your... petroglyph. Petroglyph. That's it. Yes. <laughs> tell me what a petroglyph. Oh, tell tell What bit is that in? Because I just want to try and explore. Oh, it's the password bit
2: about you know you can't <laughs> you can't use password as the word password. Red bar. You know your new password has to have six characters, no more than twelve. It's got a capital letter, non-consecutive numerals, two punctuation marks, and a Polynesian petroglyph.
0: That's it. <laughs> I told you I'd murder it, but. <laughs> Like something like that that is that to me I really made me laugh when I heard that line, and I, part of what I like about it is its overwrittenness yes, it's so it's almost like a good example of that, like you're almost making fun of your own tendency to overwrite
2: exactly yeah, and and also it's about uh technology you know, and how they because they, they keep extending it, you know it used to be you could use password one two, three as
0: your password, you know? yeah, I miss the old days. <laughs> So this is Will. I've got so much to tell you. I am going to crack straight into the admin and we'll get back to Will as soon as we possibly can. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Uh, lots to talk about. Uh, let me start with this. This is a quick uh, email from a listener uh, called Ren. Always lovely to meet someone called Wren. Uh, obviously uh, Ren and Stimpy uh, my fa- is my favourite Ren <laughs> and I can still sing the uh, Canadian Kilted yaksman song by heart but this is Ren Reynolds, uh, he-, he sent me a very lovely email to do with his digital stickers and a potential opportunity there but uh, he also said, he ended his email, thanks again as I find the podcast fascinating and I'm doing the thing of which I already, that's I consider that a goldsmithism, I'm <laughs> saying I'm doing that thing of, blah, blah blah and as well as the other thing I say and now that I've pointed out you're going to find it maddening to hear me say it it's I apparently often go, I just sort of feel like, and then uh, whatever I feel like after that. Uh, He says, thanks again, I find the podcast fascinating, and I'm doing the thing of dip, 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 okay, fuck it, episode one, episode two, episode three, which makes me feel like we should have a hashtag dip, dip, fuck it, but uh, I don't know if I approve of promoting uh, swearing on tweets but uh, that would i think that would also make me laugh. Um loads to tell you about the tour before we get into that um I would like to remember to thank the correct podblin for this episode which is the marvelous Olivia Phipps. So thank you very much for logging the episode for me and uh, also Nathan Wood is as ever um the uh, the editor the producer of the show. Um there's going to be another kind of uh, person on board which is uh, which I'll t- I'll tell you more about later on. Um because the t- okay Should we do the tour now? No, we'll do the tour in a minute. Tickets are on sale now for Soho Theatre, for the new run of Soho shows. Um, I'm releasing the first official date the first official person booked, which, as you know, means that I've booked one official person. And that is the 4th of January. It's none other than Izzy Sutty. I cannot wait to have Izzy on the show. Uh, She is a wonderful, wonderful person, a very, very funny comic. You'll know her, I'm sure, if you're you're struggling to recollect that name from somewhere. She is Dobby on Peep Show, and uh, she's also a brilliant musical comedian in her own right, often compared to Victoria Wood uh, in terms of her, she's just got a real grip on people and what makes people tick. She's very, uh, her persona on stage is very innocent. Um, very kind of blithe and guileless and just a joy to watch. Very, very funny. Izzy Sutty is going to be my guest at the Soho Theatre on the 4th of January. You can go to com, and as ever, you can put in the usual code word. What's the usual code word? It's FAF. All capitals, I believe, but uh, try it in all variations if that doesn't work. Um, F-A-F-F. Uh, at SohoTheatre.com to book tickets for Izzy Sutty on the 4th of January. I'll be bringing you the next two names in that run as soon as I know them. Um, So that's that. And uh, another little blurb. Thank you for your donations. The donations continue to trickle in and I'm always very grateful to see them. I'm always very grateful to have my phone beep and go, oh, someone's remembered they love the show and they'd like to support it. And they'd like to donate five, 10, 20 pounds or whatever else they seem uh, they they feel is relevant, uh, sometimes considerably more than that. So thank you to someone that dropped a 50 on me recently. It's very kind and it all goes towards making the show. Making the show an increasing part of my life, I should say, and making it bigger, wider and broader and giving me the funds to do crazy shit like go to L.A. and take risks on things and uh, take risks on a Soho run uh, and just try and get more and more guests. The The fact of the Soho run has inspired me and instigated me into making lots more offers to lots more interesting people. Not all of whom have got back to me, not all of whom want to do a live show, but there are um, some very exciting names in the pipeline and and even more to come. Um, If you don't want to do a one-off donation, you can do a recurring donation. All of these things at ComediansComedian.com. Press the button on the page or go to ComediansComedian.com forward slash donate. Uh, And you can set up a recurring donation if you like via any number of systems that I've uh, proudly put on there. Um, And those are great because even if you just donate a pound a month or two pounds a month, whatever you like, um then hopefully you forget that you set that to donate and then years later i own your house <laughs> that's what we're going for come on that's the system but um if you'd like to if you find that you're one of those people who when i mention donations you go ah oh, yeah i love the podcast i want to i want to give him a little something something um and then you often find yourself thinking that who is it is it dan evans has got a brilliant joke about only re- oh, it's Sean Locke has got a great joke about only remembering you need to buy a new pillow when you're in bed encountering your old pillow and you're, you're away from any means to buy a new pillow. Um, so if you're one of those people, set a recurring donation if you please. And if you'd like to to support the show without donating... Two new things to do. One, you can buy via the Amazon widget, which is on the donate page. Anything you buy through that Amazon window, even if it's not something I've recommended. There's a couple of things, a pattern album, and uh, uh, of course, the uh, the Steve Coogan audiobook of I, Partridge, read by Steve Coogan in the character of Alan Partridge. And it is mwah, superb. Those are the recommendations. If you click on the Amazon widget, you can buy other stuff from Amazon, and I get a little kickback. Probably some sort of micro percentage, but it all helps in the long run. Um, and the other thing you can do uh and this is this is fun we'll come up with a name for this when we when we when we think of one but you know i often ask you to share the show to get a video of it or take take your your favorite thing from comedians com. go to that that blog page you know that episode of the show and paste it on someone's page no one does that I've course well maybe you do but i don't think many people do that of course you don't why would you It's not fun. I tell you what is fun is next time you're talking to someone about the show or having a conversation about podcasts at all and one of those crazy people that doesn't know or understand what podcasts are says, oh yeah, I'm not. You say, are you a podcast person? And they go, oh yeah, I've heard one or two. And it's patently obvious that they're lying and they're frightened of the technology. We know how easy it is, but they don't. So what you do is you snatch their phone off them. You go, give it here. And then you hit the podcast app, which is inbuilt now in most models. Search for this show, subscribe to this show pick an episode that you think is good do remember to subscribe because that way they they keep downloading them even if they don't want to and they'll be too scared to learn how to stop it happening um and get your favorite episode and go bang that's that one that's the Patton Oswald one that's calman that's jason byrne that's pasco whichever one it is chuck it on and they go there you can just listen to it give it back to them do give it back to them that's an essential part give it back to them and they can uh, they can get stuck into that that is just one of those are those are four or five of the ways you can support this show now, we come to a way that you can support me if you'd like to. You know I'm on tour. Uh, you know I'm going to go to all manner of exciting places. Um, and if you're someone who lives in one of those places, you can do a thing to help me. I know, you know, I mentioned I wanted animators on the Buxton episode. What was that, like six months ago? I'm still getting emails from people going, yeah, I'll animate for you for free or mates rates or profoundly expensive, but I'm brilliant. Um I just love that you want to help me and you want to help the show. So here is a very tangible way you can uh, you can support the tour that I'm about to do. And remember, at the end of all of my tour shows of last year's show, uh, last Edinburgh's show, it's called An Hour. I'm going to do a little 10-minute secret Q&A afterwards um, off the record where you can ask me whatever you like about the podcast. So there's another little reason to come and see it. But if you're someone who lives in one of the the cities that I'm visiting, the cities and towns, which are... A quick list here, I shall do it quickly. Birmingham, Nottingham, Kingston, Windsor, Crawley, Manchester, Bristol, Southend, Canterbury, Aldershot, Hemel Hempstead, Milton Keynes, Bath, Norwich, Leicester, Corby, Wolverhampton, the Soho Theatre shows have just gone on sale as well. And Sutton, if you live in any of those places, send me an email, info at com with the subject line, Cavalry. This is me calling in the cavalry Um and... Uh, basically what happens is if, you, if you're if you someone who works with other people, if you work in a bakery that other bakers work in, or if you work in a in an office, or if you're a teacher and you've got a staff room, if you've got some sort of cork board or public space, shared space, that you could put up one of my posters for the show, if you're in a school in Windsor and you go, yeah, I'm going to go and see Stu, why don't I put up a, a poster in the staff room? Just email me with cavalry in the subject line. Tell me your address, how many posters you need or flyers or whatever it is you want. uh, And just I'll I'll send you one and you stick it up in the staff room. And it's win-win because people will go past and say, who put that picture of that handsome comedian who appears to be nibbling his fingers in a slightly self-conscious way? Who put that there? And you'll say, oh, I did because I'm really connected to the world of comedy. And this guy is a guy with whom I have a special podcast relationship. And they won't understand what that means. And uh, and they'll go, great, I'll come to... And everyone will bring all of their friends. And I will not lose thousands of pounds at a time when I have a new baby. So that's the plan. Uh, Cavalry in the subject line. Give me your address and tell me uh, where you can stick a poster. And I'll send you one to stick. I think that's everything for now. Where's my little notes gone? Hashtag dip, dip, fuck it. Cavalry. Faff at SohoTheatre.com. Buy through in the Amazon widget. We've thanked Olivia Phipps. Finally, we've remembered to thank the correct Podblin. Um, That's it for now. That was a long one, I know, but I'm excited. I've got lots of irons in the fire. It's. I think this is all the, the, the result of October. What I do is I, I finish Edinburgh. I have September kind of nominally off. I do some festivals, do some gigs, but I don't worry about writing. October, I go, okay, this is a new thing this year. This is Podmin month. I'm just doing podcast stuff. And then November, I go, oh, holy Christ, I've got to write a new hour. I might even have 15 minutes of it. I had such a good gig the other day. I'm really looking forward to the next one. But, um... I think this is the reason I'm all full of beans at the moment is there's so much going on and so much new stuff. I'm definitely going to have to do this October every year, do the Podmin thing. I might chuck one in in March or April as well. Uh, so that's it for now. I will now emerge from underneath my duvet and get back to my real life. Remember, the Comedians Comedian podcast is not a substitute for writing your Edinburgh show or your tour or your dental lecture or your blurb for your website about your cakes, or your crazy poetry as you run around and walk your dog. So get back to it after we return to Will Durst.
1: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: One of the things that was very interesting about your show, that I was laughing at the time, but afterwards I was reflecting on it, is I don't know if I've seen someone in their 60s doing st- observational stand-up material about being in your 60s.
2: Well, it's not popular. LAUGHTER <laughs> As you can tell from my uh, attending crowds, because people don't want to admit that they're old and they're afraid that I'm going to do a show about, you know, euthanasia or something. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to start advocating. Dog to
0: death is in town, isn't it? That's the issue. Yeah,
2: (laughs) But in L.A., you know, they're so focused on youth. And, you know, you're old at the age of 30. I've heard of... Comics who have been told, you know, we're just looking for people under thirty, and yeah. they've been told to get off the stage. Uh, so yeah, and uh, uh, nobody is willing to do a show like this in L.A. But I live in San Francisco, where, uh, <laughs> which is not the real world. It's
0: uh, <laughs> it's not. So t- just uh, you were t- we were we were with you in your twenties. Describe for us the kind of the trajectory of your career from from working in the 70s and 80s you then because I, I and again this is it's quite magical to look at your YouTube videos and see a selection of uh, men in you in in wildly different clothes hairstyles yeah comedy I never, rooms.
2: Had, never had a persona I uh, I was just uh, the angry young man uh, I started out in San Francisco and in San Francisco back then because it's one of the tertiary markets it's not New York and LA is where the cameras are plugged in, so that's why everybody goes there. So uh, in San Francisco, when I got there, there was five levels where you were—you uh, were an open micer, and then you became an MC. Someone trusted you to book you for a show for an entire week, and then you were an MC, and then you were a middle act, and then you were a headliner, and then you moved to LA, and that was the entire uh, maturation of it. You know, it's it's. And, uh, you know, the evolution of comic. And uh, so you moved to L.A. But then the scene expanded so horizontally, you know, because we started out with three comedy clubs in 1984. And by 1994, within a 90-mile radius of San Francisco, there were 15 full-time comedy clubs that you could drive to and come home. So you could book – each club twice a year. That means that's 30 weeks of, uh, of work a year. So I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area.
0: And when you say weeks of work, are you getting booked for an entire week? How Wednesday
2: through Saturday or Tuesday through Sunday. Some okay. of them are Tuesday through Sunday. Not anymore. Not anymore. Now it's usually Thursday through Saturday. Yeah. It's a full-time comedy club.
0: Yes. Yeah. There's, uh, there are certainly places in Britain, commercial comedy clubs, that used to do two shows on a Friday, two on a Saturday and a Sunday. And now they're doing one show on a Saturday. Ooh. Yeah, that hurts. Ooh. <laughs> that's, and that's within my lifetime, within, within my wow. comedy lifetime.
2: Well, at the peak, because comedy was so huge, and you had all these comics, and yet it, it, there might have been 40 full-time comedy clubs in America in 1984. By 1994, there were 440. There were four in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Knoxville, Tennessee could not support four comedy clubs. So, and, so and how yeah. many
0: how many comics were working? I don't need a number from you, but in the sense of how like how saturated did the circuit feel? That it still has it has it always felt viable as a career? Like certainly with the contraction of the circuit in the oh, UK, oh not anymore. No,
2: no, no, I have to run twice as fast just to stay in the same place. I uh, I because I'm I'm too old for the comedy clubs right now. As uh, the average age of a comedy club in the states is 18 to 35 has been, is now, forever shall be. God bless you. And and something happens at age 35. So the comedy clubs want their comics to reflect the generation of people who are in attendance, and so do the audience. The audience doesn't want to see some old fart on stage. Look at these girls. They're bored out of their skulls. Uh, <laughs> and, and well should you be. <laughs> But I come on stage and I'm talking about politics and the kids just stare at me like, why is this bitter old man lecturing me? So uh, it's I have found a different path. I do one man shows now in theaters because people will still come to see me in a theater. How do you
0: how do you feel about that comedy club booking policy? Does that rankle? Do you feel like I'm do you feel like you can still say stuff that's relevant? Do you feel hard done by by the clubs?
2: Oh, no, it's just what it is, you know? I still still work a couple of clubs. I work uh, a club in Boston, a club in Chicago, a club in San Francisco, uh, Seattle. You know, I work Minneapolis. I work, you know, maybe eight clubs a year. So I can still do clubs, but, you know, it's also the way the people who own the clubs are marketing them. And in San Francisco, both the clubs are owned by a giant corporation called Live Nation, which – so it's – they're very tied into Comedy Central. So they get most of their comics from there.
0: Okay. And did you – do you feel that you saw that coming over the 40 or so years of your career? Like I've certainly had moments when I've stopped and thought, hang on a minute, I've got no CV. How old are you? I'm 38.
2: 38. Yeah. So you're starting to feel the pressure too.
0: Well, I don't know that I feel under pressure, but I certainly feel that I've had moments of going, if I change my mind and want to do something else, then it had better be something to do with talking to people because that's all. <laughs> that's sort of my only... I've got no physical CV that I can give to someone. I go, what have you been doing for 12 years? Well, I'm really good at driving at night. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. so, uh, so I just, I wonder, did you have a, a sense in advance, like, is there... What, I suppose what I feared. I used to be a street performer. Ding, uh, take a, take a drink now if you're playing along with the game at home. Um, and uh, as a street performer, I remember seeing guys in their fifties doing street shows Ooh. at Covent Garden, Ooh. and I remember thinking I would love to be able to do a street show when I'm fifty, but I don't want to have to. Right? Do you feel what? Do you? I mean, obviously you have your, your column and your touring shows. Do you ever feel that your success as a comic is a cage in any way? Is it no. something that you have to keep doing, or is it something that you 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 relish being able to keep doing? No, it's
2: I I love getting out on stage, and you know, do, writing is is wonderful, and doing radio commentaries and voiceovers, and and you know, whatever I do, I but when it works on stage and where I make my money is from corporate gigs because uh, most of the corporate gigs are businessmen who are older and because in my politics I take out both sides I'm kind of a bipartisan asshole. Um so and it's and they have to do business, you know, these businessmen, they have to do business with both sides of the politicians, both Democrats and Republicans.
0: So they can see the humor on both sides. Okay. Okay, and presumably corporate gigs pay rather more than club gigs. So they it's can. almost like your audience has grown up with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about um, something I'm I'm very keen on asking my guests is what bit of someone else's stuff do you most wish that you'd written?
2: Oh, there's so many. But, you know, I find it hard to watch other comedy because uh, I'm afraid of material, you know, once again, seeping in and then bubbling up later on. So I don't watch a lot of comedy. But uh, there's so many Lenny Bruce routines, you know, where he talks about the Catholic Church, and uh, which I shouldn't mention. And uh, there were, uh, George Carlin, uh, just his uh, his use of words. Yeah.
0: If you had to review your own comedy, if you were a, if you were a comedy critic, what would you say about your own act? Oh man, I don't know.
2: I, I can't see it. It's one of those forest for the trees things. All I know is all the interior, you know, the punches were patched together something here. And I don't want some... I I can't imagine looking at the house from the inside with new eyes anymore. I
0: can't. Okay. Well, tell us about Edinburgh. So how are you... Is this your first visit to the Edinburgh Fringe? No,
2: this is my eighth visit. Your eighth visit? First time I came was 89. Wow. Yeah, I I did a show (laughs) at the Playhouse. And I was rooming with uh mike haley and steve coogan yeah who were doing a double act back then okay and it went well and then i came back in 90 and that went well and then i took a couple years off and uh, but i haven't been here since 2004
0: okay uh, so coming to it as a uh, totally different yeah jesus I mean, how's it changed and what, wow. are the, what are the main things that you've noticed that change uh just the spaces and and and
2: and the crowds, and and there used to be predominantly comedy, but now it's, Jesus Christ, uh, there's a <laughs> lot of comics, and uh, the Gilded, and the Pleasants, and, and then the Assemblies, and the Stand, and the Stand, and the Stand, and, and three more Stands, because uh, there's actually six, uh, so... Uh,
0: it just seems so much bigger. I don't know if it is. There's lots of parallels between uh, Edinburgh now and the Free Fringe in particular. I mean, here we are in the Black Medicine, right, which is a, an, a coffee the, shop on Nicholson Street in Edinburgh, and we're here as with part the most of- dangerous chairs in the world. <laughs> they are certainly very artistic, <laughs> um, and uh, we're here as uh, part of PBH's Free Fringe, which is one of now uh, at, at least four. I think four free fringe organisations. And there are lots of similarities between uh, street performing and the free fringe in that you give people something for free. And only at the end do you talk about money. <laughs> Nervous laughter. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, there are lots of parallels. And I think it's really, um, it's giving people the opportunity to uh, to work, to perform... Uh, in when they don't have to make an enormous financial commitment to it, that would wipe out a lot of people.
2: Well, I'm fascinated by uh, walking a slack. How did you figure? How did I-
0: <laughs> this is we can talk about it afterwards. Well, no, no. this- <laughs> why the audience has already heard this? Well, uh, yeah, well, this is really? episode 136 or something. <laughs> I, I do. I mention it every time I mention uh, street performing. The audience at home has to take a drink because oh, wow. that's one of them. Similarly, whenever I use the word unpack, so let's unpack something uh more Shall about we? You. <laughs> let's talk about your your club sets when you work the clubs um are you doing uh well, how long do you do how long is a standard club set for you over here it'd be like 20 to 30 minutes uh 45 to an hour okay yeah so what you think of as a a standard set is sort of what a lot of british comics are scraping to get together every year yeah <laughs> but you're putting together a new hour every year what are you doing this year uh, how do you mean? What are, am I are you doing uh Yes, a sh- I'm doing an hour. I'm doing my fifth, my fifth hour at the uh, Cannon's Gate. At Cannon's Gate. Yes. So, so it's is a 70-seater it comp- underneath a pump.
2: Is it a brand new hour from last year? Yes, it is, yes. How do you do that? It's fucking killer. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it Coming, is. Coming Because Woody Allen said writing a 45-minute stand-up set is like writing a novel.
0: Yeah. You know, because putting it together... I've written a bad novel. It's a yeah. good stand-up set. <laughs> But if you put it against the novel, I don't think you'd see the holes. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it, how often would you turn over material? Or well, uh, I mean, has that changed throughout your career? I, I do 30 minutes of new material
2: every year, and 20 minutes lasts. So okay. in two years, I could write a brand-new comedy set, 45 minutes. Okay. But it would take me two years. That's why people want me to come back the following year, and I say, "Ah, uh, let's skip a year.
1: <laughs> and I'm I'll busy. Come back. And my diary is yeah, really yeah. full. Yeah. It doesn't
0: work every year, you know. So I come back every two years. And when you're in writing mode, are you getting up? Are you the sort of person that goes right nine o'clock in the morning? I'm going to do some writing, or what? What does that? What does that look like?
2: Well, tonight. Where do you sit? Tonight do you do? I'll write. For what I do is I, I do a commentary. And the commentary is about three hundred words, and I record it on my little computer. And uh, hey, guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words on boom. And tonight it's going to be about authenticity, because that's what the political guys in America—that's—that's that's what is being rewarded. That's why Donald Trump is doing well, and. Uh, a, uh, no, because he is authentic. There is no governor there, you know. And the other two people who are doing well, Ben Carson, who's uh, an African American brain surgeon who's never held elective office before, and he's running for the Republican nomination. And my joke is a black guy running for the Republican nomination has about the same chance as a black guy running for the Republican nomination. Uh, and then the other person who's doing well is Carly Fiorina. And she used to be the CEO of Hewlett-Packard, but she's never held elective offices. So I'm going to write something on authenticity, you know, being – the and also the fact that, you know, they're outsiders and, you know, they never held elective office before and that's why they should be elected to run the country, you know. It's like, you know, hiring a brain surgeon even though, you know, but he was a really good plumber. You know? So – You're going to hire him as a brain surgeon because he's never held uh, the office of a brain surgeon before. Uh, So I'll do that. I'll write that tonight. And then tomorrow I'll record it because I'll be drunk by the time I write this. And so tomorrow I'll record it and I'll send it off to 12 different radio stations. I'll tag each one differently. uh, For... Uh, for Howie's Freaky Fat Friday, I'm Will Durst. For something else, I'm will. so I tag each one individually. Okay, and then I send that out, and then that's the kernel for the column. That those 300 words will become the recorded on my little computer. And uh, hey, guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words on boom. And tonight it's going to be about authenticity because that's what the political guys. In America, that's that's what is being rewarded. That's why Donald Trump is doing well. And uh, uh, no, because he is authentic. There is no governor there, you know. And the other two people who are doing well, Ben Carson, who's uh, an African American brain surgeon who's never held elective office before, and he's running for the Republican nomination. And my joke is a black guy running for the Republican nomination has about the same chances. A black guy running for the Republican nomination. Um, and then the other person who's doing well is Carly Fiorina, okay. and she used to be the CEO of Hewlett Packard, but she's never held elective office. So I'm going to write something on authenticity, you know, being the, and also the fact that, you know, they're outsiders and, you know, they never held elective office before, and that's why they should be elected to. Run the country, you know, it's like, you know, hiring a brain surgeon, even though, you know, but he was a really good plumber. Uh, So you're going to hire him as a brain surgeon because he's never held uh, the office of a brain surgeon before. Uh, So I'll do that. I'll write that tonight. And then tomorrow I'll record it because I'll be drunk by the time I write this. <laughs> and so tomorrow I'll record it and I'll send it off to 12 different radio stations. I'll tag each one differently. Uh, for uh, for Howie's Freaky Fat Friday, I'm Will Durst. For something else, I'm Will So I tag each one individually. Okay. And then I send that out. And then that's the kernel for the column. That Those 300 words will become – the... Um, and the stand-up page
0: which do you find most satisfying
2: oh both at different times Yeah, i wouldn't keep doing both if i didn't enjoy them but there's something uh and once again i'm one of these people who uh who write something and i'm much more enamored of it than other people are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a great column yeah yeah it was nice no, you don't understand because this, and then I did that and, and
0: and it's fun. and which which column have you been most proud of? Is there one that sticks out for you? is like that's the one that I no, no, I can't.
2: They're all babies. You can't pick your favorite baby. you know It's like my child, no, that was a good one. Yeah, he's a little deformed, but you know, I still love him.
0: <laughs> so do you think of yourself more as an artist or as an entertainer? And I'm I'm talking about your stand up here, not your cut.
2: I'm a craftsman. I'm a Midwestern plotter. I know artists. I know guys. Uh, there was a guy named Bill Hicks, and he was wonderful. And he would either kill or die on stage. There was no in between. The audience either loved him or they hated him. I see people walk out on him and, and then others would, you know, demand that he be canonized and, and rise as one. But he was an artist and he just kept – and I'm, I'm too much of a chameleon. I always go which, whichever way the audience wants because I think my job is to make people laugh out loud on purpose against their will. And that's already hard enough. But I'm not an artist now.
0: That's interesting, that idea of making someone laugh against their will. I think those are the moments when I know I've got a good bit. If you you can sort of think this this is undeniably funny. Yes, yeah. it doesn't matter if they hate me at this point. I can be tanking, but this thing will lo- will make them laugh because it's funny.
2: Every comic has that that savor in the back of his act. You have that one moment where this one works with every audience, and you just and and you you approach it different. You know, you kind of okay, you didn't like that, but yeah. then you go into that one, and then the only response you get is one guy in the back goes. Huh. <laughs> just so, like just like now.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: just like you guys.
0: I have to say, when I saw, I saw one of your very, I saw, in fact, your very first preview in the Gilded Balloon. Yes, show, you did. And it was uh, not well attended, that first show. That, that is a polite way of putting it. It was not. Well, there yes. were 11 people. Yes. And, uh, and you played like an absolute champion. I have to say, I was sat there, thinking, you know, you walk in excited going, okay, oh, I think it's just us. And I've seen some <laughs> comedians, I've seen some comedians really tank in this situation. I'm sure I've, over the years, I have killed potentially fun Low capacity you know low audience number gigs, but I thought you came out i mean are there any are there any particular like in all of your years of experience, have you got particular methods of dealing with adverse conditions
2: no i i 'm too silly to actually try to prepare it like that <laughs> uh what what are but what I have found and you found this too that you can have a dead full audience that is you know just not with you they just not on the same wavelength and and or you can have eight people in the crowd and they're and you get that feedback and every room has something i call critical mass that you need a critical mass of the amount of people in that room in order to really and i was talking to Diane Spencer she's yes, at Diana, the Diane, yeah. yeah she calls it ignition she had the same theory that you need ign- and for the room that I'm in, it's about 50. I need about 50 people in there before, you know, the energy that they're giving me can feed off of my energy and I can feed, you know, and it's, uh, you know, like when they have one of those uh, those uh, Tesla, you know, coils. Yeah. You know, you need that with the audience. You need a Tesla coil. And uh, sometimes you can get it with eight people, but hardly, yeah, most of the time you need at least a third of the room full.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if there are any questions, feel free to raise a hand. We have over forty years of experience of the comedy world over the back. <laughs> you said that you don't uh, you don't watch other comics, um, but are there any contemporary comics that you particularly enjoy? There's, anyone... there's a guy named Greg Proops. Do yeah. you know Proops? Yeah, yeah, we know Proops.
2: Yeah. Well, he he started out doing improv with my wife, so they're very good friends, and we go see him a lot. And I just enjoy the, the hell out of him. He's, he's funnier than fuck.
0: <laughs> uh, any others?
2: Oh, can I say fuck?
0: That is a fantastic question. Are you already familiar with the podcast? Are you someone that's come? Oh, cause you, a you're going to love it, mate. If you go, okay. um, uh, do you, and I want to word this exactly right for the sake of the recording, say it again do you think that a comedian touring is uh, an attempt to run away from the responsibilities of adult life? Yes. (laughs) 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 Um,
2: Comics are weird, you know? I mean, there's so many comics and... uh, you hear all the thing about the depression that Stewart mentioned that he was going to bring up and, and I am one of the guys who I'm kind of happy. I don't, you know, I don't really care. Uh, uh, but, Yeah, I I know there's a lot of comics, you know, you hear them talk about, oh, but they're a kid, and they love their kid, and oh, here's pictures of his kid, and and then you will, dude, you've been on the road for two months, you know, don't you ever see your kid? Well, yeah, but I love my kid, and then you end up with, uh, they just use it for materials sometimes.
0: (laughs) Do you, do you think that comedy, do you think the business, the industry of comedy, do you think it's a meritocracy?
2: Uh, I'd say 40% of it is,
0: yeah.
2: I'd say 60% is having the right people and being in the right place. And, uh, but yeah, unless you're still doing it, you won't be in the right place. The only people still doing it are the ones who never quit. So it, a lot of it has to do... But you're also right. I mean, we've lost so many good comics through all sorts of things. You know, there was drugs in the '80s, and and uh, there was booze and illnesses. You know, lost Bill Hicks to pancreatic cancer. We lost uh, Warren Thomas. Uh, um, about 15 years ago which was a great loss to the comedy community so our family responsibilities i mean you lose it's it's very rare for a comic to be able to keep on that path you know there's so many other distractions and and real life responsibilities that are, that are pulling you back and
0: and did did you how how come you have survived how come you Debbie and I don't have kids because
2: we are kids you know it wouldn't be fair. Also, that phrase, adults produce children, but children produce adults. Well, we were never willing
0: to take the risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you still angry? And if not, is that due to your age? I th- I think the anger
2: in the beginning was uh, evidenced on stage, perhaps with uh, a less sophisticated uh, approach. And the anger, I think it's easier to make a better point without, with, uh, just by being a little smoother, you know, and and not necessarily letting the anger take over. You still have to have. I mean, I read the newspapers about these idiots and what they talk about, and I get I get so pissed. And listening to Fox you News, know, and I'll scream, but I, I'll 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 try to make it funny. I'll, I think that's that's the first part. You got to make it funny because we you know we're not going to change the way people think. What we can do is we can plant seeds for future that may grow, you know, if watered. <laughs> by by the blood of the the patriot tree you know no if uh, if but eventually you know you can you can you can empower people what you can do on stage you can empower them to make them think that yeah that's what i thought you know that their opinion is just as important as what they're being told because sometimes the issue seems so complex and people just go oh whatever he says is fine you and like, no, no, you can, you can, yeah. Your your first instinct was right on this, and if you can make it funny, because I think laughter allows hope to you know come back on the inhale, and I think that's what comedy is. Uh, that's a major function what we do. We are the you know, the famous say we're the canaries in the coal mine, mm. you know, we're the first ones to sense the danger. Well
0: do you think there is just staying with that emotional contact and you mentioned lots of uh, comedians that we've lost to I know some to suicide and some to drug overdoses. Do you have any time for the kind of the, the tears of a clown notion? Do you think that their the comics are more liable to depression than anyone else?
2: See you did get there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh
2: yeah well it's lonely, and I think one of the reasons uh, that uh, comics seek out this profession has to do with you know perhaps dealing with that issue and because universal love as opposed you know not tonight, but sometimes you <laughs> know when you, when you get it on stage uh it, it's a it's a balm you know it gets you through the day, and if you have enough days that you can get through,
0: who knows the gentleman's asking where the difference between audience reactions, not just in terms of the, the cultural references that you're making, but do you find a difference between uh, American or British or even Scottish audiences? Do you find that...
2: They're a little more reserved over here. Uh, they take umbrage a little faster. Uh, and uh, they, they they aren't looking necessarily for the joke. They, they want the joke... Uh, Given to them, they they won't. But the same, you know, it's has to do with. But the the references thing, I like that part. I like learning the different references. I had someone uh, mess with me because I do a joke about Waldo. Where's Waldo? That you know, I don't even know. Uh, who I am anymore, you know, because I get 18 different usernames because I can't be Wilders because that's already taken. So uh, even even at Starbucks, when they ask for your name, I don't want everybody to know my name at a Starbucks. So I always I tried being Ace, you know, but I,
1: <laughs> but
2: I couldn't keep a straight face. <laughs> What's your name? Ace. <laughs> so now I'm Waldo. Because one out of six people, you know, six times will go, where's Waldo? You know, now you're playing my game. But someone told me that over here you don't have Waldo, you got Wally, but that doesn't work. <laughs> I tried, where's Wal? It doesn't have the same boom, you know, that Waldo has. So I went back to Waldo, it still works. <laughs> yeah,
0: because, uh, yeah, so you guys are able to make a lot of leaps. <laughs> well done Britain well done uh ladies and gentlemen uh, before we wrap up I said oh you were wonderful Stuart Goldsmith what a great interview thank you thanks so, so much, much. you're because indomitable well, well I you did... just keep going I said before we wrap up and <laughs> thanks for getting the compliment now we're gonna no. get stuck in no I just wanted to ask finally whether you got what you wanted from comedy like people go into it for lots of different reasons. Whether forty years later, you could look back at the twenty-two-year-old Will Durst and oh, say, "Oh man, I was so lucky. Did I
2: had so many wonderful times. You know, so many, so many moments." And and uh, I, I I didn't leave a legacy, you know, which I guess is what I wanted. But
0: uh, what kind of legacy would you have been happy with?
2: He changed the world. <laughs> um, but I did get to go to the White House. I uh, did a, um, I was friends with a woman who married Hillary Clinton's brother, so we got invited to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and it, we got to meet Bill and Hillary, and uh, got kicked out of the White House. Actually,
0: what did you get kicked out of the White oh, House? Oh, it was
2: it was like uh, 10 p.m. and uh, the chief of protocol said, "All right, everybody out." And I said, "I've been kicked out of better places than
0: this." <laughs> And she said, name one. <laughs> <laughs> it was hysterical. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the brilliant Mr. Will Durst. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> thanks so much. And that's that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. My thanks to Will Durst. Uh, thanks to Nathan Wood, Olivia Phipps. Uh, and Saski Anderson, uh, my fiance, who is assisting me with lots of stuff, including the Break Glass project, which I didn't mention before because I mentioned so many things. If you have any further things, we've got 34 entrants now and I'm sifting my way through them. If you have a particularly inspiring moment from the podcast back catalogue that you would like to be on this new uh, music-based compilation, then uh, to Break Glass in case of emergencies to listen to when you've died on your ass at a gig or failed at a job interview or whatever, um, if you want to hear your favourite comics talking about how they pick themselves up, set over some stirring music by Mr. Steve Dunn, then tweet me at ComComPod with the hashtag BreakGlass and suggest with with the timing on the episode as well in numbers, if that's possible, if you're feeling, uh, uh, if you're that conversant with it, um, send me your most uplifting moments. You can also do that on the ComCom Facebook group. Exciting YouTube news coming soon. And you know me, when Goldsmith says soon, he means within two to four months. That's all for now. I'll speak to you soon.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat,
1: rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns